All right, we're going to finish chapter 8 of uh, John Brown and Wamfrey's Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer. Uh, this is the second part of the chapter on family worship. And um, if you recall last time, <clears throat> he was concerned to deal with this issue of prayer really with an eye to two things. The reason for it, for the command and, and the sinfulness of omitting it. But the second part, and that's what we're going to deal with today, is uh, the, the various uh, propositions concerning the profitableness of it. Right, so we know that <clears throat> neglect of family prayer, family worship, that that is wrong. God has commanded it. Uh, it would be sin to omit it. But there are distinct advantages. And Brown wants us to understand the advantages. It's not just um, a, a, a big stick over our heads, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to beat you. There are many benefits that are promised. There are many um, advantages that accrue to the families of people who engage in family worship, who uh, maintain family prayer. So we're going to talk about a, a number of them, uh, these advantages, and then uh, toward the end of this chapter, uh, he <clears throat> answers a few objections or fields a few questions on this issue, I think, that help to refine uh, how we should be thinking about family prayer and its actual practice. So, <clears throat> let me read again his... Um, the Bible verse that he's using as his pull quote throughout the book, <clears throat> John 14, 13 and 14, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> of course, this is um, part of the agenda of all of this prayer is the augmentation or increase of the declarative glory of God, uh, particularly in and through Christ. Right? So as we look at the advantages, uh, we should keep in mind that these advantages are advantages which are peculiar uh, as everything else uh, that we... Uh, when we talk about prayer, there are a number of things which are peculiar <coughs> to those who are, in fact, believers. Um, the, the singular advantages are to those who are uh, actually believers. And so, you know, each one of these advantages is a renewed call to you and to me, to everyone, to make their calling and election sure, 
to examine yourself and make sure that you're in the faith, uh, to take an inventory, uh, particularly with respect to your, uh, your attitude toward family prayer, your demeanor when it comes to family prayer. You know, because if, if you're hesitant, if you are drawing back, if you find it onerous, and so on, to the degree that you do, uh, not only should you be concerned about a number of the things we talked about last time, uh, those, uh, those various points that show the deep sinfulness, <clears throat> but now as we look at these things today, uh, you should be aware that you are, in fact, depriving yourself of peculiar spiritual advantages. And one of the great purposes of these advantages, before we talk about them and, you know, and enumerate them, one of the great advantages of, of all of the, the spiritual advantages to God's covenant people is that these are a, a tremendous means for confirming you in the faith and for bringing you into a greater sense assurance of your salvation and standing before God. Okay, so um, these, these are things that, you know, in the broadest sense, <clears throat> I would say the, the broadest advantage is that it gives you a certain amount of peace of mind vis-a-vis uh, -vis spiritual things, right? When I am attracted to this, when this is the desire of my heart, when this is something that, um, that moves me, <clears throat> something that I would rather do uh, you know, where your heart is, your treasure is. I mean, this is a general principle in the Bible. So the more, um, the more interested, the more drawn you are, the greater sense assurance you're probably going to have, and rightly so. But the more you draw back, uh, the more you're going to tend to lose that sense assurance. Now, it's not the same as losing your salvation. You're not losing that assurance of faith. But there is, you know, there is a sense uh, that some of the um, earlier Reformed people talk about uh, that belongs to believers when you're in a way of obedience, when you're in uh, that, that spiritual... Uh, sweet spot where you are trying to please God, you want to please God, you're, you're not in the grip of any habitual sin that you're aware of, and you are endeavoring to uh, an increase in sanctification. Right, so let's you know, look at these um, these advantages. <clears throat> And Brown, Brown does preface it by saying, understand when we talk about an advantage for those who engage in family prayer, <coughs> for each advantage we have to contemplate, there's a disadvantage if we don't. 
right? There is the other side. He wants to focus on the advantage, not the disadvantage. But you are depriving yourself and you are depriving others because we're talking about family worship uh, when you draw back. <clears throat> so, there are 12 advantages that we're going to examine. We're going to look at... Um, we're going to begin at 166. What is the first advantage mentioned in connection with the duty of prayer? <clears throat> so he says that there's this advantage. You have God shining in love on a family and dwelling in the family as his temple and habitation. When families are like little churches, um, offering up daily sacrifice of praise, the calves of their lips. And he, he says, look, this is exactly why, by the way, the Bible is, um, and the Apostle in particular, is so adamant that you are not unequally yoked. Right? Because God, as he, as he points out from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 uh, and following, uh, he says, God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the rationale for not being unequally yoked. And if you think about that, that's God saying, look, I intend to dwell among you. And this is not going to be so if there is this unequal yoking, is there? There's going to be a problem. So he says that, that it becomes Christians in, in families to, uh, to conduct themselves as Christians because they're, the, they're to be the temple of God. What kind of situation is it if you have a family and you've got one spouse or the other, for example, drawing back from family worship, you have one who is not enthusiastic uh, for family worship, there's, there's an impediment. And that impediment is going to be felt, it will ripple throughout the family, right? Whereas when this is sort of a central feature in a family, there is a continual reminder, a, a rebranding daily of the family as Christian. Right? We're reminding ourselves, we're coming together and reminding ourselves that there's, there's a higher obligation, that there's, a, there's an honor and a love to God that uh, should be preceding everything that we, we do, everything that we are. Uh, everything that we think, and so on. 
<clears throat> All right, let's move on to the second advantage. 167. So the second advantage is when a family carries on as a Christian family, that is, by devoting themselves to God and worshiping Him, he says, then they are as a family in a position to receive rich blessings from God and they lie open to his influences of love and mercy. <clears throat> and, uh, for example, here he points to the, uh, the case of Jacob uh, in Genesis 35. And he says, look, Jacob purged his family and he erects an altar to the Lord at Bethel. And he says when, when he did that, what happened? <clears throat> God appears to him and gives him the name Israel. And then renews the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac. Right, so there is, in that, uh, there's a kind of, I would say, a kind of covenanting. Right, a covenant exchange going on. He's taking hold of his people in their worship and they're taking hold of him. He's revealing himself to them. Why? Well, because now they are uh, they're open to the influences of divine love and mercy and they're, they're actually positioned to receive blessings from God. As blessings from God. There are, there are people who receive divine benefits. There are a lot of people who receive the benefits of God's um, benevolence. But they don't receive them as blessings from Him. When, when a family is conducting itself in the manner that Brown is talking about here, He's saying you're in a position to receive them as intended, as blessings. And that's really only the, the only way that the benefits of God will be blessings. Right? The, the problem with fallen man is fallen man continually turns benefits that God bestows into occasions for more sin. Brown is saying this is a great antidote to that propensity in mankind. Right? Family worship. <clears throat> right, let's move on to the third advantage. Uh, 168, what's the third advantage mentioned in connection with duty of prayer? <clears throat> So he says, uh, God who hears prayers is going to hear family prayers and give a return in mercy 
when he is sought and served in due manner. <clears throat> and his argument is like this. He says, look, uh, God is called the hearer of prayer, right? <clears throat> and he says, that's indefinite. We're not told that he's only the hearer of individuals or the only, only the hearer of churches. Uh, he is simply the hearer of prayer. And so we can conclude that he hears prayer as prayer is offered. And so prayer offered in families is prayer that he's going to hear. And he references Psalm 54, uh, 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears open under the cry. So he says, look now, look. Uh, his eyes are on righteous families. That is, uh, the families that call out uh, they, they call out to him through a mediator, through Christ. And his ears are open to them. And then the Psalm 54, uh, the next verse, says, The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. <clears throat> and he says, notice what the psalmist says. God's strike against the wicked is not only against them, but against their posterity. In other words, God is judging people in their families, isn't he? He's not just um, dealing with people as individuals. You know, and I, I point this out, not only because Brown is pointing it out, but because um, in <clears throat> modern Western cultures, People tend to be very, very individualistic in their thinking. And that needs to be tempered. You know, there, there's a healthy individualism which arose <coughs> at the time of the Reformation, for example, um, a concern for individual liberty and, and so on, uh, that, that came out of this concern for the salvation of the individual. But we need to be careful that we don't uh, forget that the individual doesn't exist in a vacuum. The individual exists in a context and that that's where the concern for you know family, church, nation, all of these things are bound up. Yeah. Is that one, is that one of the only things that Communism gets right. Um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, they're they're appealing to a neglect, I think, that that has occurred. Uh, you know, the the problem is like every every heresy in the history of the church has at its very center a truth it's insisting upon too much. Right. So, uh, for example, you know the Socinians are uh, emphasizing the unity of God, uh, monotheism, to a point where they're going to deny the Trinity. <clears throat> and all, virtually every heresy has been that way. So we need to be careful uh, 
that we don't neglect these other things. Very often, the reason why we're contending with these heretical and erroneous and, and um, problematic uh, points of view is that very thing. There's a point that's been neglected and uh, the enemy comes in like a flood uh, on those points, you know, wanting to emphasize and call attention to a neglect here or there, and it's sort of a lot of times, a lot of these things are like shining a, a spotlight on, you know, a blemish. Uh, it's great to know that the blemish is there, but shining a spotlight on it doesn't, you know, doesn't make it better. <clears throat> so we need to be careful in that regard. So God, the, the point in, in this third advantage is that God is, uh, is dealing with people in families. <clears throat> he is um, very much keen to cut off uh, wicked families. But, you know, when the righteous families cry unto him, he's near to hear them. And there, there are examples that he gives. Let, let me just say <clears throat> on that point, you know, that he's judging them. If you want, if you look in Western societies and you ask why, why is the birth rate down? Why have we become an antinatal society? Why have we um, elevated certain aspects of, of um, human sexuality over others? You know, like childbirth. The answer, the answer is, it's a judgment of God. Ultimately, it's a judgment of God. We are watching God destroy family after family um, and, and just run them into the ground. You know, they're right, this family childless and that family childless. And they're doing it to themselves. You know, people are voluntarily sterilizing themselves in various ways, right? Through, uh, you know, this is why the, the church has always opposed uh, the use of contraceptive methods and has always been pro-natal. Right? And to the extent that in the 1930s, the churches opened the doors to that point of view, uh, frankly, I think that that was the opening that has blossomed into uh, not only legalized abortion, but uh, now we are in, you know, we're um, entertaining sodomitical marriages and so on. You know, if, if marriage is not, if, if the central point of marriage is not the procreation of children, if it's simply a matter of um, uh, companionship, then there really is an argument to be made, right? So the church has lost the moral high ground in many instances because of its its uh, waffling and and sometimes uh, just downright uh, acquiescence in this kind of culture. 
that that's not something that we find in only uh, the so-called liberal churches. Uh, a lot of so-called conservative and evangelical churches have bought into that lie as well. Right? The command from the beginning was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. <clears throat> uh, there's no contrary command in the Bible. There's no ground, uh, therefore, for restricting it. And it's uh, everything against that is a breach of that commandment, you know, a reactivity against that that is not seeking that end is a breach of that, that activity. And so I, I point that out because he's saying, you know, that God will hear the, the, um, the prayers of, of the righteous families, families that uh, conduct themselves as Christian, but there again, you know, the wicked, he's judging them. And it seems to me to be an indication that there's a lot of hidden wickedness in the church that this is going on. All right, let's move on to number four, the fourth advantage. I mentioned in connection with the duty of prayer, 169. <coughs> So as families receive outward favors from the hand of God as particular persons, uh, when they come to them by means of prayer, he says these are, these are uh, viewed as sweet and singular favors of God, favors of uh, the, the smell of the heaven and the love of free grace. He says there is the like in the case of families. Right? There's um, so particular persons when you <clears throat> when you receive an answer to prayer or when you by means of prayer uh, there is something received some outward thing received this is something which is by uh, particular persons generally viewed as the fragrance of heaven. You know, the Puritans would use a lot of language like that. This, is, uh, this has a smell of heaven upon it. And he's saying that this, <clears throat> uh, this too, for families. And so... instances, you know, families praying to him in famine or time of persecution and God keeping them. So he says when you, when you see not only as, as particular persons but as families when you, when you see answers to prayer um, those things are <clears throat> are peculiar um, peculiar emblems uh, I think is the word he uses somewhere here they are, they are evidences of the free grace of heaven you know flowing down upon you 
All right, let's move on to number five, the fifth advantage mentioned in connection with duty of prayer, 170. He <clears throat> says, prayer is the means to obtain a sanctified blessing to family mercies. The family has to have food and clothing and other things to, uh, to sustain and preserve it. <clears throat> and Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So the receipt of all good things, you know, from God's hand. Uh, there's a reason, again, he's pointing out here, you know, at least in part, why why we um, pray before and after meals. You know, that there's a reason that we ought to receive this as from the hand of God. That is, we need to do that if we would sanctify it, if we would, if we would see that it's being conducted to a holy use. <clears throat> and as far as raiment goes, clothing, you know, you, if you were to read um, uh, Scudder's Christian's Daily Walk uh, is, is one place, but the Puritans, a uh, number of them will tell you, you know, you should be uh, praying as you put on your clothing, right? I mean, thinking, thinking about putting on Christ for the day, for example. Um, <clears throat> there are, and, and Brown is just reinforcing, he's not getting into specifics here, but he's reinforcing that general idea, right, that all that you have for your sustenance and preservation in life, uh, but not only, he's saying, not only as individuals, but also as families, this is a concern. You know, there is a sense in which we can say, uh, you know, everyone in the nation or in a particular province, uh, everybody who lives in these areas, they're, uh, they're in it together, right, to a certain extent. Uh, when you're in the church, you're in it together to a certain extent. And the same applies to families, right? You're, you're in it, in each of these connections, you are in it with other people, uh, albeit with different connections, but you're in it with them uh, in, in ways which are very often peculiar to those connections. Right? We can't escape war if our nation goes to war, for example, particularly if we're being invaded. <clears throat> right? The church can't escape persecution. Um, you, you know, if, if one part of it is being persecuted, uh, the fact is there's a sense in which uh, every part of it is, is in danger. Right? We should feel the danger. Which is why we should be concerned when we hear about uh, Christians being persecuted under Islam, for example. Because it may not be happening here yet, but uh, this, is, this is where that leads. And we can see an example of that. And we should know that that 
example is real to us. Yeah. And the godly magistrate has the obligation to go into these countries where Muslims are being persecuted and kill the persecutors, right? Christian magistrate, um, you know, to the extent that they're defenders of the faith, uh, they may have some obligations in that regard. To make offensive war on behalf of um, those who are being persecuted. If, they're, if people are being persecuted for their faith, for the true faith, for the true religion, yes, I think at that point we probably need to consider uh, something. But, you know, we, we need Christian magistrates to rise up to do that sort of thing. All right, but we shouldn't allow the church to be persecuted when we have within our means the power to stop it. You know, there are times in the history of the church when it was not within the means. And, you know, we're in, in a in a current situation like that. All right, let's move on to number six, the uh, 171, the sixth advantage mentioned in connection with duty of prayer. <coughs> so he says, there may be in the family some young or old, uh, some one or other, more who have need of the pouring out of the Spirit for their conversion, their conviction and conversion. So here, here again, this idea of um, of covenant connection, right? You're you are uh, you're set in family in a family. And there is a presumption of covenant connection there uh, that, you know, it's, it's literally, as the Bible would show, it's yours to violate, right? You, you violate it by every act of disloyalty, dis, uh, you know, disintegration, uh, removal, and so on with respect to the family. But in the meanwhile, the family has a peculiar obligation to pray for the conviction and conversion of those who are not, uh, in fact, being moved by the Spirit of God. It's analogous, really, to um, the situation of the church, the local congregations. There are people, uh, you know, we have a mixture of wheat and tares in the church, and uh, we, don't, we don't know until things reach critical mass point, whether or not uh, someone is necessarily one or the other, right? So uh, we're to we're to pray for those who, you know, don't evidence anything and, until unless they show themselves to be something else altogether. And so <clears throat> he points to uh, the example of Job who was careful to sanctify his family. Uh, Job 1.5, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. You know, it was Job's daily work. He was trying to um, keep up with what he thought might be the sins of his children. <clears throat> so, uh, there's, there is that aspect of the family. The family is not simply there uh, to sustain you in, in um, physical or temporal needs, but 
there's an obligation for the family to carry you in these other areas as well. Right. And uh, look for, long for, hope for the, your conviction and conversion if you're not, uh, if the Spirit of God is not working in you. And again, it, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, the, um, if we're talking about a Christian family, right, and we're talking about the truth, then to, to the degree that people are pulling back from that, uh, those are all, you know, demonstrations of, of a kind of unbelief and disloyalty. You know, it's going to, it's going to be uh, harder to discern, say, in uh, the family than in the church. Right? In the church, the unbelief is going to be more prominent. In the family, the disloyalty is going to be more prominent. Uh, but there, there are elements of both, right? I mean, it, you're being called in covenant to God uh, in, in families and in churches. And ultimately, to draw back from that is uh, a matter of, of covenant refusal or covenant breaking, uh, which is a kind of disloyalty to God. And uh, there is, um, joined with that, unbelief. Underlying unbelief. So, families, you know, it's Paul talks about uh, the churches, and in, in the churches he talks about bearing one another's burdens, and that's really what Brown is saying here. There's this idea of bearing one another's burdens. Um, in some sense, at a much more fundamental uh, level than uh, you would uh, in, say, the church. Although the church, I think the, the church rightly conceived is going to take on a certain familial quality as well. Like there's like an extended family. Uh, because there's a spiritual connection. In some respects, um, the church and the um, the claims of the true religion, you know, they they have to take when when they're out of line with our families, they have to take precedent over other aspects, perhaps, of our families. Uh, but that's that's really the only thing that has that kind of, of um, uh, right, divine right. right? There's, there is what is right and true that God has said, and we have to always obey God rather than man. Okay. Right, number seven. Seven. Seventh advantage, 172. He says, there's something pleasant and comely to see families walking in the fear of God, each one minding their duty to another in a Christian manner. It's so husbands and wives carrying to each other is fitting, masters and servants minding mutual duties to one another, parents and children walking each in their station in the fear of God, 
again, he says, when all these things are out of course, mutual duties are laid aside, the fear of God is cast off, everything is turned upside down. And he says, if you, if you don't believe it, think about this, when any one person in the family is out of order, it causes discord, where there should be harmony. And he says, he's basically saying, you know, the family that prays together stays together. Right? When you draw back, when you cease to want to pray with the family, um, you probably are losing touch with the family. Again, you know, he's presuming you're talking, we're talking about genuine Christian families here. And, you know, that that doesn't always um, that doesn't always follow right? not everyone is brought up in a Christian family but everyone who is a Christian has an obligation to uh, be part of establishing when they marry uh, establishing and, and conducting a Christian family Again, he's saying it's an advantage. So keep in mind, there's a great advantage to being brought up in a Christian family. You know, contrary, I guess, to what um, Baptists tend to think or believe, you know, that doesn't really seem to matter too much. But uh, Brown seems to set great store by uh, this being this advantage of being brought up in a Christian family. And I think rightly so. I think he's got the right idea here. Alright. Let's look at number 8, the 8th advantage mentioned. It's number 173. He says it's a, it, it, it is a... Um, uh, a pleasant and desirable thing to the spiritual soul uh, to see a family assembling assembling together and devoting themselves to God and uh, he's real he's alluding to something we're going to talk about more uh, in a moment, but um, it kind of indicates that you know morning worship is more of a matter of devoting oneself to the fear and service of God for the day, whereas evening worship is um, giving uh, the time to give thanks for the for the favors received and and so on. So he says it's a desirable thing to see families like temples, right, like little churches, where there's a concern for the morning and evening sacrifice. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But um, he says that 
he references Romans 12.1, this idea of uh, presenting your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, even as being your reasonable service. And he says, and that's, that's what they're doing <coughs> as a family. There is a consecration of the family. There's a consecrating of uh, the, the whole that's going on in these exercises. And so they are... Um, the, these are all advantageous. Okay, number nine. The ninth advantage mentioned in connection with duty of prayer... 174. He says, think about this. When there's any visitation, <coughs> ordinary or extraordinary, <coughs> on the family, any rod on any member of it, any cross or sad dispensation on the whole or part, young or old, There is a great advantage that families that conduct family worship have, that they can pray together and make conscience, uh, make a conscience, uh, conscious exercise of the duty. Make make their conscience exercise. Excuse me. And he says this. <clears throat> if you remember in um, Jeremiah 10, the last verse, the prophet says, Pour out thy wrath on the families that, that don't call upon thy name. And he says, Now, if, if your family is calling upon the name of God, and there is this visitation of sorts, then you have reason um, to look at this very differently than others, right? In other words, he says there's no ground to look upon it as the fruit of the wrath of God. Rather, we need to seek the blessing of God in the, the dispensation of this visitation and we want to seek the sanctified improvement of this. <clears throat> so, in families that are calling upon God, uh, you know, when there are visitations, visitations are not to be immediately assumed to be uh, just simply uh, the plague of God be, because, you know, you, uh, you're not calling upon God. It's not like that. It's very different. Uh, there should be a very different calculation going through your mind. Right. Seeing certain things as the plague of God, uh, that kind of interpretation is a legitimate one for unbelievers and for people who are not calling upon God in prayer. 
right, covered in breakers. But when there are what we might call, or with uh, I think Flavel in his uh, uh, book on the on the frowning providence, what is it, the, the providence of God? It talks about frowning providences. Um, when those things occur, <clears throat> those should be looked at by us as uh, calls, occasions, uh, provocations to look for the blessing of God in, in a, perhaps an unusual manner uh, from a, a, maybe from a direction we weren't even thinking about prior to that uh, visitation. Right? So we should have a very different way if, if we're Christian families conducting ourselves as Christian families. We should be looking at things in a very different light than uh, the heathen, for example. <coughs> <coughs> Number 10, the 10th advantage mentioned, uh, 175. He says, um, the families that, he's still talking about families that, that worship together, uh, Since there's a great advantage that they have, I'm just trying to uh, think of a good way to summarize what he's saying here. <clears throat> he says, let, let's, let me put it this way, this is, because this is his point. As individuals, we pray, lead us not into temptation. Right? Right? Uh, there are peculiar temptations that are being set for us. And we're to pray uh, with all prayer and supplication against uh, principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, wicked spirits, and so on. He says, now, just like it's happening with you individually, particularly, he says, when you pray, when you engage in family prayer, you are also, it's, it's like this is a prophylactic against this assault as a family. Against like the family sins or whatever. Correct. Like that. Yeah, that, the family sins or family temptations. So they're, they're, being, they're praying to be delivered over to the protection of God as families. And, and he says, um, as Satan, as soon as he can, wants to sow discord in the family. Right? Which, again, is why this emphasis on praying together. And Satan is always trying to sow discord between husband and wife, parents and children, and so on. And that is um, something which denigrates and, and, and um, eventually destroys the integrity of the family. <clears throat> he says it really, it's hard for this to happen when 
family prayer is being conducted, where people are showing up. And I, I suspect that most of the time, you know, the people that begin to become problems in families are the people that, you know, are not showing up, right? Uh, there's, because there's already, there's some spiritual impediment. There's something going on. Again, I'm presuming all kinds of things here about, um, you know, the presence of true religion and so on. Uh, you know, that there's a Christian family and there's a profession of true religion. But drawing back from that is, you know, moving away from that in whatever way is already, from what Brown is saying, you're, you're, you're laying open certain doors for temptations um, that are not only going to affect you, they're going to affect the family. Like they're going to be assaults. So just as there's like a hedge around individual people, there's he spiritual hedges around families, but only one member can disrupt that hedge. Yeah, one member can neglect, right, upholding that hedge. So you say, he, Brown is saying this is an important thing. There has to, there, there needs to be this um, endeavor. Alright, number 11. The 11th advantage, 176. And this kind of, I, I think this kind of makes uh, sense um, just about any way you think about it. But he says, look, when families are are engaging in this duty. All the members of the family are in a better case to serve God acceptably in more public assemblies of, of um, the church than otherwise they might be. There's, there's a certain... Uh, preparation that he's saying think of it and he, he does he says the family is like a small church and so when the small church is careful and religious circumspect in in the way that they're worshiping that's going to translate uh, to the more public assemblies okay so why, you know, our, our directory, I'm just going to bring this up because this is one of these things I, I get this question on occasion. You know, do we need to, to line the Psalms when we're outside of the public worship of God? And the answer is not necessarily. However, if you begin to think about your family worship as... Uh, a time when you are, in fact, fitting yourself better for the public worship of God, doesn't it make sense to try to do things uh, admittedly in a, in a uh, 
a much more condensed and uh, much more focused in the sense uh, that there would be uh, more local or more familial concerns perhaps being expressed in the praying. But doesn't it make sense to replicate in a condensed form what's going on in the public worship of God? Right? If, if we think about the principle he's talking about here, that it's making you, family worship is making you, in some sense, better equipped. Right? So I would just say, think about that. Right? The, the fact is that... <clears throat> When, when family worship is neglected, uh, he notes that there's going to be less spiritual harmony than ought to be expected. So, you know, in the bigger assemblies of the church, we should be looking for achieving greater and greater spiritual harmony. That's why I, it seems to me that... Um, you know, if we take this point seriously, um, family worship, to some extent, is going to want to mirror congregational worship. Uh, that said, you know, we do have a directory for family worship uh, in with our standards uh, to give us help in some of these matters. Anyway, let's move on to the twelfth advantage mentioned, one seventy-seven. Family worship is, uh, in a sense, uh, keeping families in communion with God, and so they're kept in what he calls the suburbs of heaven. Right, so through family worship, uh, people come to become more consciously aware of perhaps things they lack, um, desires they have, difficulties maybe, uh, their, their need uh, and reliance upon God for support and light and so on. And so to the extent that family worship is, is um, taking up those kinds of things, then... Uh, to that extent, we can say family worship is a, a great means for keeping us you know, in what he calls the suburbs of heaven. Right. The, the, the fact is that uh, most of your life uh, outside of the Sabbath day, most of your life is engaged in all kinds of other pursuits and, and thoughts and concerns and so on. But family worship is sort of that anchor bringing you back. So you're not, you're not drifting without any kind of um, anchoring or any kind of, of challenges, you know, for six days and then on the seventh you... you 
all of a sudden find yourself being challenged again. This keeps you, and I, I like to say to you, the suburbs of heaven. You're in the neighborhood. Family worship is going on. You're in the neighborhood of heaven. Okay. <clears throat> so those are the advantages that he lists. And as I said, it, those advantages all imply the contrary disadvantage if we don't have family worship. And if we're not um, forward to see that we're involved in family worship. So now Brown wants to answer a few questions that usually, I guess, are brought up in connection with this idea of family worship. And I think uh, the points that he's going to, uh, to raise and answer are generally points which are helpful. All right, so 178, who ought to lead in this duty of family prayer? <clears throat> the fathers? Well, he says the duty lies chiefly on the master of the family. He's the head of the wife, the head of his children, the head of the whole family. And, by the way, as he points out, um, the fact is, the fathers are uh, particularly singled out in the fourth commandment as having charge over the whole family, right? seeing things that are set in order for Sabbath keeping. So... <clears throat> you know, I, I know a lot of people uh, have their complaints, and I've heard complaints, you know, from people about wives and so on. You have to remember, the duty is with the father. And that may mean that, you know, a big part of the problem here is uh, the father has to take some provision to take order uh, and so that's that's the the gist of, of his answer here it's I mean to resist the authority of the father in, in something like this is not it's not only insubordination uh, but it, it 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 is rebellion against God. Right? You're not just rebelling against you know, the authority of the parent. But you're rebelling against the authority of the parent in something which God has commanded the parent to do. You know, specifically. So there's a direct affront to God in all of that. And um, in covenantal terms, I would just say neglect of this uh, casting off the authority of the parent and so on in this matter is going to um, 
It's going to land you in the category of covenant breaker. And if God is going to have mercy upon you, uh, you might get a severe ride in this life until you repent. God is not going to have mercy upon you. Uh, things might go well, and then you'll spend eternity in hell. So be careful. All right, let's move on to 179. <clears throat> what should be done at the head of the family? Have not the gift of prayer. The head of the family uh, doesn't have the gift of prayer. And he says, look, first of all, he's to pray as best he can. And if he is lacking in this respect, it's actually the duty of all the rest of the family to begin to pray for him that the Lord would be pleased to pour out upon him his spirit and enable him to uh, do this duty uh, in, in some better measure. And he says that, you know, he says that uh, he has a willing mind and, and so on and is going to exercise in this. Generally, people in praying will grow uh, somewhat in their praying. But he does say that in this case, it may be if the wife is more fit for the work, she can help forward the work. And he goes on to say, in fact, it would be better that a servant discharge the work than to allow the work to fall in, you know, aside altogether. And so he's, he's not saying this is an excuse for you. If the head of the house... You're not the head of the house, and, and the head of the house doesn't pray. Uh, it actually increases your responsibilities and duties with respect to this. Right, 180, what is the most fit time for this duty of prayer? <clears throat> And Brown says that nature seems to be determined the most fit time is morning and evening. Morning before the family's engaged in their daily work. So you can seek his favor and blessing for the whole day. Evening, having returned, uh, thanks for the mercies of the day. And pray for God's protection for the night. So he, you know, he says, he goes on to say that uh, as to a particular time or season, the morning or evening or at midday, each family can best judge of their own circumstance and determine the season wherein they will be best in case to discharge the duty with fewest distractions or difficulties and when the family can be assembled and attend the work without distraction. And so he says, Christian prudence should direct us to the duty 
that it might be best performed. Now that in mind, you know, you will find um, you will find a lot of books written. Uh, probably the most famous one today would be Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. But there are a lot of books that have been written uh, by reformed people that consist of morning and evening devotional readings, short readings. Uh, and sometimes people use these in their family worship. You know, they're, they're just short meditations or what have you. Uh, and, it, and it really arose from this desire to try to establish a couple of times a day, to fix a couple of times a day, to have family worship. So, then the question is, uh, 181, what if work interferes with the duty of family prayer and worship? Get a new job. That's kind of what he says, actually. <laughs> yeah, he, say, he says, if, um, if work is necessary and sore, you have more need of God's help and blessing, you need to remember, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You think going to work is more important than worship? Um, that work should take priority over worship. He said that the more you think that, the more you need worship. Really, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrow, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. He says God's blessing can reach far and make little do much. He's saying essentially you need to be uh, careful in the way you're thinking about this question. Right? Are your concerns with this world or are your concerns with heaven? You know, if you're if if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these things will be added. Try to seek first the things of this world, and you will lose this world and heaven. <clears throat> and he, and he, he says here, look, I, I know that sometimes it, you know things occur in providence, unforeseen, or that couldn't be prevented. Um, that you know press people, but those are the exceptions. Those are the exceptions, more. correct. He wants to be very clear. We need to make those the exceptions. All right. 182. What should be done with family members that resist the duty of family prayer? He doesn't have the option of family prison. But he does say disorderly persons uh, under authority as a servant or son should be kept by authority in order. And that a servant a servant that would, would mock should not be allowed to dwell in the family any longer 
um, and that the master of the family should use his authority to keep his house undefiled. The son should be rebuked. If he continues rebellious, he actually does say he should be delivered to the magistrate's hand according to the law. So he's saying, he's essentially saying, this ultimately, um, if we had a godly magistrate, you should be able to take your, your kid over to the godly magistrate and say, beat him. Isn't that what happened in the Old Testament? Where yeah. He yeah. refers to Deuteronomy. Yeah. You have De- get Deuteronomy uh, 21, 18 to 21. This is, that's the reference. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have ch- chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the, his city and unto, unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Yeah, so he also, he also says, look, you know, those members that are stubborn, rebellious, and so on, they should be made subject to church discipline as well. Now, hypothetically, if, say, there is no Christian magistrate and there really is no church, you well, still have to the kick them out. The church, the, the church has to exercise discipline in the absence of that. Yeah, right? but, but, but say there's no state or, or there's no godly magistrate or church, established church. Right. Um, you kick them out, right? Just leave them to, them, leave them to Satan. Well, you're, right? in, in, you're going to reach a point where there's nothing else you can do but, but turn them over. Yeah, cut them off. And, and you're doing that as head of your mini you, church. You have, in a way. Yeah, you have an obligation as head. Of, it's head of well, your your family is a church nation. Yeah, so you're right? excommunicating. You're excommunicating and executing them. Mm. Yes. Right, figuratively, obviously. <clears throat> All right, so 183. Why isn't it enough that everyone discharged the duty of prayer separately? Seems fair, sort of. He says, but you have to remember, we've already, in the first part of this chapter, we've already cleared the point that this is a duty required of families. So every family apart, as well as every person apart, should call on the Lord and mourn before Him. This is just like secret prayer shouldn't uh, prejudge the public worship of God in the churches. Right? That that is, it shouldn't be to the prejudice of prayer in the churches. So neither ought it to shut out family worship. Because, by the way, you know, private prayer is something that will make you better fitted for the performance of the family duty. And he refers to Proverbs 28.9, He that turneth away his ear from the hearing of the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Uh, And he says, so he who neglects the public worship will find his private less acceptable. He who neglects the more public worship of God in the family will find less acceptable his more private and solitary devotions. 
Secret prayers are going to be abominable to the Lord if you despise family worship. So if you have the right attitude toward it all, it's going to work together. If not, you know, all the he's saying all the private prayer in the world isn't going to make up for uh, those public prayers that you that are required of you. So, um, David Clarkson actually has a, a lengthy, I forget whether it's a sermon or a treatise, uh, where he talks about the, the idea that uh, the public prayers and praises of the people of God are more acceptable and desirable to God than their private prayers and praises. Which is, uh, again, contrary to the American Baptist mindset, but... Um, it, it brings more declarative glory to God, correct? When yeah. it's done publicly in the, in yes. the sight of all men. Right? Yeah. Alright, let's see. The last question here, then 184, how much time is it requisite to be kept in the duty of family prayer? <clears throat> and so... He says that um, when there's an unwilling heart or heart weary of the service of God, everything proves to be a lion in the way. A willing mind is going to find out a satisfactory answer to this. And he, he says, you know, that the soul being more precious than the body, you know, we, we should be careful um, with respect to this. Um, you know, he, he really doesn't give an answer to you know, how long, but he says... Um, People who know how to manage their time on a market day to the best advantage uh, should have some sense of how to uh, organize their family worship to, you know, that kind of maximum advantage. And so whether it's, you know, Whatever the length of it, um, it shouldn't be something where people are are sitting there getting weary of it. Mm. On the other hand, you know, some uh, Brown doesn't bring this up, but some do. We we ought not um, unnecessarily to make it seem like some onerous thing that you know we're doing. Right, we shouldn't. We should be careful uh, how we balance all of that. So, you know, that's that's probably why um, so many people do these little 
morning and evening devotionals to help families uh, and individuals, but I know that there are also family study Bibles that have been put out from time to time where people of the ministers have gone through and just created small lessons that can be read uh, during family worship. And those things may be uh, of great use and help. And there may be a, a good reason to use those kinds of things. You know, particularly if you're in a situation where uh, this is going to be the you know, the majority of your reading and, and of others wouldn't hurt. Anyhow, uh, so that's, those are the advantages, those are some of the concerns. Uh, in the next chapter, we're going to be looking at the, the whole issue of averseness to prayer. Why, from whence it comes. Why is it people are so averse to pray? <coughs> so we'll examine that along with John Brown next time, Lord willing.